Greetings, friends. This is Why Whiskey, a history podcast with a whiskey problem. Or is it a whiskey podcast with a history problem? We'll let you decide. Head on up to the bar, grab a stool and a drink, and let's talk. Gentlemen, welcome back to the bar of questionable life choices. I am your host, Ian. This, this is why whiskey. Oh my God. It's literally been forever. It's been months and I have missed you. Wow. Have I missed you all? It is so great to be back. I am so excited to be here. I really don't remember the last thing we talked about. I don't have exact amount of time to know like how long I've been gone. Uh, but let me share a little bit of my life in the in my absence. We bought a house. Holy shit, we bought a house. So, <laughs> uh, crazy story there, which I'm not going to get into too much. But it's in Michigan. Uh, we are uh, going to be retiring there. So, uh, we went ahead and bought the house and we moved Jill and the kids to Michigan. So... The studio is quiet. The studio is very quiet, and I am not okay. But it's only temporary, and that's fine. We're good there. We're good. Um, I got back involved with school, and that sucks. Uh, I had a great leadership development class. That was amazing. Uh, Ellis Bush was my instructor, and it it was what I needed. Some great books, probably some stuff that'll come up in the podcast maybe here uh, down the road. Uh, good stuff. The other class I took was an ethics class, and that guy, well, I'm going to take uh, some wise advice from a rabbit named Thumper and not say anything at all. But anyway, puke. And finally, the last big piece. I know I've been talking about it a lot, but it's actually done. I submitted my request for retirement from the United States Army. Officially, with a effective retirement date of 1 November 2022, I will be out of here sometime in April and on to the next big adventure. And that's going to go by really fast, and I'm really nervous, and I had like my first big workshop for all of this stuff. Transitioning out of the Army is super weird, but man, I'm in, I'm here for it, and I'm ready to go. So... All of that being said, I think you're caught up. I think we're back to like levels, good levels, bubbles, levels, level bubble. I don't fucking know where I was going with that, but it's okay. I'm not worried. We're good. So let's get going. 
Tonight's topic of discussion is about a couple of fellas that uh, hopped on some horses and took a ride through the greater Massachusetts countryside in the middle of the night back in April of 1775. Some of the folks we're going to be talking about, Paul, William, John, little dude by the name of uh, Sam, some of these guys, another John, talking about Paul Revere. That's who we're talking about. We're talking about the midnight ride. Here the come, here it comes. The Brits are coming. The Brits are coming. Which, also kind of funny, that was never stated. He did not yell, the British are coming. By all accounts. But we're going to get into all of that here in a little bit. We've got the whiskeys ready. We've got everything lined up. We are going to get after it. Come with me. Here we go. So the first thing we are drinking this evening, and I know some of you are probably shaking your head. You're not really sure what's happening or if I'm okay. Let me first say I am okay. I am safe. Things are well. But we're opening tonight's show with, oh God, with rum. Yes, I said it with rum. So I thought a good theme for this evening would be to keep all of the drinks within Massachusetts. And I started kind of looking at what I had present. And I had uh, some some great whiskeys that are made here locally in the great state of Massachusetts. I also had a rum. And back in that time, rum would have been the predominant distilled spirit. So I figured, fuck it, let's go. So we went. So tonight's opening uh, little sipper here is from the Deacon Giles Distillery in Salem, Massachusetts. This is their amber rum. It's Solera aged. Not sure how long. Doesn't say. It is molasses based. There's no age statement, like I said. And uh, and they have this uh, great little story uh, how uh, Deacon John Stone started talking out about spirits and uh, Deacon Amos Giles was the guy making the spirits. So instead of just kind of being cool about things, right? Um, and actually, uh, a Reverend George Cleaver was also speaking out. This, the, the link to this website will be uh, in the show notes. You guys can check this out. It's a great story. Uh, and, and like all distilled spirit stories, there's some truth in there, I'm absolutely sure. But anyway, so uh, Deacon Giles, right, after getting kind of rebuffed, and uh, this is in the 1830s, by the way, which is the start of the temperance movement. So right around that time, alcohol in America was getting kind of crazy, right? So uh, 1830s, now Deacon Giles just starts going ham and starts naming his his whiskey or his his distilled spirits after terrible things like liquid damnation, death, sickness, and poverty, and those types of things. Reading that right off of the website. So this is what it's named after. These two fellas got together, uh, Ian Hunter and Jesse uh, Brenneman. Ian is the co-founder, and uh, they what they have is they have these fun titles, right? What their titles are. So uh, Hunter is the Count de Mont. And it lists like their favorite drinks and stuff. These guys, like these, these are dudes that I would like to hang out with at a party. So, uh, if by chance the Deacon Giles Distilleries folks hear this, uh, y'all just look super cool, and I would love to spend some time with you uh, and talking about your stuff. But I digress. So here we go. We're going in with their uh, their amber rum, and it's really quite quite an interesting bottle. Uh, it's it's a little um, it's heavy. 
super heavy. And the Solera aging process is always cool. So just a quick reminder, the Solera aging process, there's multiple tiers, right? So it acts as kind of like an infinity barrel. So a little bit of each uh, make gets put into the barrel and then they take it out. So you've got this crazy kind of blend of super old and super young and uh, kind of all mixed up in the middle there. Really fascinating process. But I'm talking too much and it's time to drink. That's rummy. <laughs> that's that's rummy. That's super rummy. It is um, it's sugar. Like that's a, the one thing that always gets me about rum is just it's this crazy just feeling of it's just sugar. Like I feel like I'm drinking liquid sugar. It's not bad. It's not. There's little burn. Uh, the proof on this is relatively low. So we're at an 84 uh, proof, 42 ABV. So it's gentle. A little flat on the nose and a little slow to start. It picks up about halfway through and then you just kind of get that nice kind of warm sort of feeling. But the finish is slow. But you would expect that from a low proof uh, spirit of any kind, really. All right. Well, there you go. Deacon Giles, Amber Rum on Y Whiskey. Crazy. But anyway, here oh, we go. So let's talk about the build-up to the ride, right? So the ride is this big major event that happens, a lot of drama. We're going to cover all of that. But why the ride? What happened in Massachusetts that caused uh, Paul and William and eventually Sam to hop on their horses and get to running, right? A lot. A lot was happening. England was acting a fool. So in 1765, the Stamp Act is uh, put in place. And this is a taxation law that just kind of, they, they literally tax everything. They tax everything. And it's bad. And it ends up like kicking Massachusetts ass as far as like economically speaking. And uh, Paul Revere actually is uh, hurt by this specifically. He's a silversmith. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Who has to now take up dentistry. Yes. I said dentistry, like teeth stuff, because apparently you could do that back in, you know, the, the mid to, to later 18th century. You could just sort of stop making coffee pots and start fixing people's teeth. I'm not sure the crossover, how that works, but that's not for me to decide. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So this happens in uh, uh, on November 1st of 65, creates a lot of tension. That tension boils over. It boils over on March 5th of 1770. There's a young soldier, British soldier, on guard outside of the customs house. And he starts getting harassed by some locals. He strikes one of them with his bayonet. Now the crowd's pissed. And soon this poor little private is getting overrun and calls for help. The help that was sent, Captain Thomas Peterson shows up with his reinforcements, and they take up defensive postures. Now, here's where it gets weird. Tensions are super high, and someone in the crowd yells, Fire. Well, the British soldiers didn't know who was yelling it, and they opened fire directly into the crowd. At the end of the scuffle, five colonists were dead, and now tensions are super high. Preston and his soldiers involved would end up in prison, and they would end up telling a different version of the story. However, 
the calls for war were already being written by folks like Sam Adams and John Hancock. Yup, the beer guy and the first signer of the Declaration. Those guys. They happen to be a part of a little group called the Sons of Liberty, which was started in August of 65. Revere was a big part of that as well. But these guys, they weren't alone. Quote, Paul Revere encouraged anti-British attitudes by etching a now-famous engraving depicting British soldiers callously murdering American colonists. It showed the British as the instigators, though the colonists had started the fight. End quote. And that was drawn from History.com. So, we have the Stamp Act. We have the Boston Massacre. Now what happens? Well, a couple years later, December 1773, it's time to do a little protesting. What are we protesting? We're protesting taxation without representation. And this now occurs at Griffin's Wharf against a ship carrying imported tea. Yes, my friends, the Boston Tea Party. This was the first major act of defiance against Britain. A series of tax acts levied by England to help pay off the debts grew dissent and anger towards Great Britain from the colonists. Led by members of the Sons of Liberty, a large group of colonists dressed as Native Americans. Wrong answer, boys. They fucked that one up. These guys boarded the ships and started destroying the tea and tossing it overboard. Quote, it took nearly three hours for more than 100 colonists to empty the tea into Boston Harbor. The chests held more than 90,000 pounds, that's 45 tons of tea, which would cost nearly a million dollars today. Also from History.com. So a bunch of guys dressed up like Native Americans hop on a boat and toss the tea in into the harbor. Every once in a while, I'll get a little feisty with my government and I'll, uh, I'll go to a body of water and throw something in the water and be like, ha, I showed you. It doesn't work. There's, there's literally no effect for that. It just makes me feel better. Don't judge me. But as you can tell from the actions that occur after this, England was not very happy. Like not even close to being happy. Like pretty much the... Direct, gross opposite of happy. I think we've established that. So, now they tighten their hold on Massachusetts by passing the coercive acts, which include closing the Boston Harbor until the tea lost in the Boston Tea Party was paid for. Shutting off imports that makes money to try to pay for something doesn't make sense, but that's just me. They ended the Massachusetts Constitution and ended free election of town officials. So now they come in and they shut off Quite literally, liberties. They just take it over. They move judicial authority to Britain and British judges, basically creating a martial law in Massachusetts. They then begin to require, demand, force colonists to quarter British troops whenever and however they so choose. They extended freedom of worship to French, Canadian, Catholics under British rule, which angered the mostly Protestant colonists. So all these things are happening. Resistance is mounting. People are getting super feisty. The militia is very active. Very, very active. Now, cool thing about the militia in Massachusetts, they're actually the start of the National Guard. The militia in Massachusetts dates back to 1630, when the Bay Colony received its charter and instructed all men who weren't ministers or lawmakers to bear arms, and be trained on Saturdays. This would eventually evolve into what we now know as the National Guard, but at this time, some, there were some farmers, grabbed their guns, 
and they got to shooting. So the history of the National Guard is, is a pretty cool thing. I'm not going to get into that because that's not really not the focus, but an interesting connection to the militia in Massachusetts and how uh, it's a part of the Department of Defense today. So these militias start building up in power. They're practicing. The Brits aren't liking them. They're starting to gain momentum. They're starting to get uh, stores of uh, weapons and ammunition and all of this stuff together. And the Brits are like, okay, we're done. We're done with this. The Brits are coming eventually. The Sons of Liberty know this. So they make a plan. They've got to hide everything. They've got to move everything. And they have to pick out a route to let everybody know if the British are moving inward. That's where we get the one if by land, two if by sea. A couple of different plans there. We're going to talk about those a little bit more in depth here in just a little bit. But before we do that, before we move on, we've kind of set the stage for the ride. Things are getting a little feisty. We're ready to go. Well, you and I aren't ready to go. The riders are ready to go. You and I are ready to go start drinking some more stuff. So we will be back in just a second. All right. Welcome back. I hope you're ready because we're moving on to whiskey number two. Well, Whiskey number one, technically, because the first one was rum. So drink. We're moving on to drink number two, which is coming to us from the Bully Boy Distillery in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, this is run by a couple of brothers, uh, Dave and Will Willis. Uh, apparently, these guys are, like, super tall, right? Uh, grew up on a farm with, like, apples and stuff like that and started with cider, and then they went to hard cider, and then they went to distilled spirits. Uh, they have a great lineup of stuff. This is, if you are a, a grain whiskey person, like a, a, like a grain-forward whiskey person, this is in your wheelhouse. So it's not a bourbon. It's not a rye. It's not anything. What they call it is an American straight whiskey. Now, why do they do that? Well, the mash bill, allegedly, right? So uh, it's roughly, right, estimated that the mash bill is 45% corn, 45% rye, and 10% barley. Somewhere, kind of, ish, in that realm. So it doesn't meet the freaking requirements for a predominant grain to be called a rye or to be called a bourbon. So they just call it American straight whiskey. Now, the straight means it's at least two years old. So, But other than that, there's really no age statement. This is coming in at 84 proof. It is aged in 53-gallon barrels. The big boys. They don't say too, too much about the barrels, though. Mm. It's like, I don't know, it's like a caramely grass. <laughs> like It's weird. All right. I don't know how I feel about this one. It's not bad. Uh, it's just, it, it's a little thin. And I was just talking about apples. So I'm getting an apple influence, but I think that's my head. I don't think that's my actual, like, tongue. Unless my son's been sneaking in here and this is what he's pulling from and dropping water in it. I don't know. Yeah, but he hasn't been home in a while. I think that would be good in cocktails. Just drinking it neat. 
It's a little underwhelming, but I believe that would give just that nice gentle touch to probably a Manhattan. It would probably probably make a pretty good Manhattan, I'm thinking. It has the right kind of subtle flavors to it. It's not bad. Interesting. All right, so here we go. The British are coming. Oh, my God, they're on the way. The day has come. And the British Lieutenant Colonel Francis has a force of 700 soldiers. And he's been given the order to stand up and march to Lexington and Concord. He is to arrest John Hancock and Sam Adams, who are in Lexington, and then proceed to Concord and confiscate the stash of weapons being stored in Concord by the militia. However, the militia was made aware of this move and had moved most of their stuff already. So the Brits were going to Concord, but they wouldn't find much there when they got there. And then they did something silly, and they dumped it in the lake. So when they left, the militia just went into the lake and dug it back out. (laughs) Silly. Kind of silly. So we got a name here that we're going to be hearing a lot about throughout this section of the show. Uh, Joseph Warren, Dr. Joseph Warren, played a big role in the Sons of Liberty. He has connections all the way through. Now, Joseph Warren was the one that got the information about the move and let the militia know so they could move all their stuff. Hints, tips, intelligence. Where was it coming from? Not sure. Joe Warren was the guy that was getting it and handing it out, though. So, there's a plan. Plan to launch riders into the interior of the greater Boston area or Massachusetts when the Brits decide to move. So if the Brits are taking the overland route, there's going to be one lantern in the North Chapel. If they're by sea, there's two. And so that lets the the riders know which route they're going so they can alert everybody and let everybody know. Now, who who are they alerting? Who are the riders alerting? The riders are alerting the militias. They're getting the militias up. They're spreading the word. So the other rider that doesn't get talked about a lot, and we're going to spend a little bit of time chatting about him tonight, is William Dawes. So you have Paul Revere, who is known, right? They wrote books about him. There's the the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Uh, We're going to read the Midnight Ride of William Dawes as well. It's not quite as dramatic, uh, and it's actually kind of funny. But these were two very different uh, personality types. And we're going to kind of talk about how that played into uh, their significance a little bit later. Paul got launched around 10 p.m. after the British troops began the muster. He went north towards Medford and then down towards Arlington. Billy Dawes, I hope he doesn't mind me calling him Billy, he got launched before Paul or even before anybody knew what was really happening. He went south through Roxbury, up through Cambridge, and then met Revere around modern-day Arlington. But what if I told you there was a third rider? Hmm. Now, he wasn't part of the plan. He was a rider of opportunity. And that was Dr. Samuel Prescott. And I call him doctor. I don't really know if he was an actual doctor because the guy was pretty young. So after an evening with his girlfriend, he stumbles upon Dawes and Revere on their road to Concord. Prescott is the only one to actually reach Concord to warn the militia which would engage local militias and lead to the shots heard around the world. So 
Let's break down the writers. Paul. Paul was the son of a French immigrant who came to the colonies looking for work, and he took up residence in North Boston. Paul followed in his father's profession, worked as an apprentice under him, and became a silversmith as well. So when the silversmithing business took a dive due to the British policies, like we talked about earlier, Paul then became a dentist. So my question is, as a silversmith, do you make, like, the best fillings, like, ever? Was he, like, blinging out people's teeth before it was a thing? Because, like, some of the silversmithing that was done back in that time is elaborate and beautiful and gorgeous and requires great tiny little details. Can you imagine him putting, like, a scene of, like, mountains and trees on your freaking filling? You know? I, I kind of feel like maybe... He he tried to stay up and tight with that. But anyway, this change in professions would get him connected with Joseph Warren. Remember that name, Doctor? We were just talking about him like 30 seconds ago, right? And then would also see him get wrapped up in the Sons of Liberty. Paul would be one of the leaders of the Boston Tea Party. Paul is noted as being very charismatic, very involved, had a great personality, was a connector. A term that we'll plug in here in just a little bit. Then we have William Dawes, old Billy. Billy was a tanner and a shoemaker by trade. He was heavily involved with the Massachusetts militia. He was active in the resistance and later served with the Continental Army. Funny story about old Billy is he was stealing some cannons one night from the British and hurt his leg. This was happening long before the night of the ride. His injury would require medical attention. The medical officer that attended him was none other than Joseph Warren. Now, upon seeing the injuries, old Doc Warren looked at him and said, So, how did this happen? To which Dawes would look at him and ever so politely say, Doc, respectfully, mind your business. To which he did. So they ended up hiding the cannons in the church, or uh, excuse me, it was a school, in the school right next to the building that they stole them from for a long time until the Brits kind of calmed down and forgot about them a little bit. Then they moved them on out towards Concord. Dawes would later end up fighting at Bunker Hill. Then we have Samuel Prescott, very young, like super young, physician from Concord, who happened to be visiting his girlfriend like we mentioned earlier. He was coming home from a late night rendezvous. Now, Let's talk about that for a second. It's one in the morning. Like, who lets their daughter court past fucking midnight? I don't know. Seems a little suspicious. But anyway, so he meets up with Dawes and Revere on the road, and Revere actually ended up referring to Prescott as a, quote, high son of liberty, end quote. So this indicates that Prescott was involved with something, and Revere knew it. What that was, we don't really know. And we don't have a lot of information about Prescott. I mean, we kind of, we could see like kind of where he went. Never ended up, so he, the lady that he was visiting at one in the morning, he didn't end up marrying her. He didn't end up joining the revolution. He would serve in the Continental Army as a surgeon. He got captured and then would die in captivity somewhere up in Canada. And he was uh, guessed to be between the ages of 25 and 26 when he passed away. And allegedly somewhere in the realm of 1777. So this very young fellow. And he would be the one that would ride through 
he would evade capture. <laughs> what? Capture? Yes, capture. So now let's talk about the routes themselves. So the British launched from Boston, caught a ride across the ferry to Letcher Point, and started marching up the road. So this meant that Dawes and Revere had to go different ways. So Revere went north. He got the signal from the Old North Church, crossed over the, uh, the Charles, went up, and he went up towards Medford, or Mystic is what it was called at the time. He had to divert. Originally, he was going to come down, I forget the name of the road, uh, but ended up running into uh, a British checkpoint. So he had to go turn around, go up to Mystic, and then come down a different way. The entire time he's doing this, he is sharing the word. He knows what's happening. Paul's route was shorter by almost four miles, and his horse was faster, which allowed him time to alert people along the way and still beat Dawes to Lexington. Now remember, Dawes left a whole hour earlier. After Lexington, the routes combined, and they head to Concord. So let's talk about Dawes' route. So he leaves, he goes uh, down through Boston Neck, down to Roxbury, across to Brookline, over the Cambridge Bridge. Now, this is an interesting part here. Uh, so Dawes wasn't as charismatic and out there and open as Paul was. Dawes is kind of uh, a little quieter of a personality. But he has this great knack of gaining intelligence by hanging out with local British soldiers, sometimes acting as a drunk, sometimes acting as somebody else. That ends up saving his ass this night, because when he gets to the Cambridge uh, Bridge, Cambridge Bridge, say that ten times fast, he encounters a patrol, and this patrol knows him, thankfully. So you can kind of see how this goes down, right? Now, this is a dramatization completely in my imagination and has no historical significance whatsoever. Young soldiers on the bridge. Here comes Billy Dawes, freaking on his horse. And takes the drunken roll. Evening, boys. Billy, where are you going? It's late. Oh, I, I matched with some spintrist over in Cambridge. I'm going to visit her. Okay, Billy. Oh, shouldn't we stop this guy? No, 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 no. Let him go. It's just Billy. He's drunk. And off he goes into the woods. Now, Dawes doesn't do a lot of communication. Dawes doesn't do a lot of talking. Dawes doesn't do a lot of stopping. Why was this? Why was there no big message? Well, it's because he left an hour earlier. So there's a great article written by Derek Beck who breaks down Dawes's aspect of this, uh, of, of the ride and, and how he kind of goes and points out some key differences between Revere and obviously himself. And some of those things are the horse right? It was older. It was his horse. It wasn't running. But the biggest key to da the difference between the two is that Dawes didn't have a message to share. He didn't really know what exactly was happening. He got launched a whole hour earlier and still gets to freaking Lexington later. So, and that plays into, you know, why he, his, his route was, you know, so slow. <laughs> he, didn't have a message of urgency to share. Now, Malcolm Gladwell has a very interesting point about Dawes, and he paints Dawes as kind of this quiet, retracted person who's not a connector, right? Who says, you know, it's, you know, uh, he wasn't as, quote-unquote, revered as Paul. You see what I did there? 
You like that? See what I did? It's kind of fun. Um, but this study by Derek Back kind of cuts that right in half. True, he may not have been such a charismatic person, but we know there was charisma in him and that there was there was action taken. I mean, the guy stole cannons. He <laughs> spied on British soldiers by drinking with them and hanging out with them and got information that way. So, so we know that he's an active uh, participant and he's deeply involved with the militia. So he would have had contacts along the route. So all of those things put together says he just didn't know what was happening. He got launched too early and he didn't have the message. But the message does get out. The message gets to the militias and they all end up collapsing on the area of Concord, but only after there's a little get together in Lexington, which we'll talk about when we come back after this quick break. Hey friends, it's Ian. I want to ask for your support. Yes, I'm doing it. I'm that guy. So there's a couple different ways you can support the show. If you want to support the show for free, all I need you to do is hop over to iTunes or podchaser.com and drop me a review. These reviews help kind of bolster my ability to get out there and have more people see the show and come and enjoy the whiskey and history and shenanigans that we enjoy on a bi-weekly basis. Now, if you want to go a little bit deeper and you want to hand over a dollar or two, that would be awesome. I have started a page on buymeacoffee.com. So the link is in the show notes, www.buymeacoffee.com slash whiskey. You can make a donation of however big or however little you want. That's just going to help me buy coffee to stay awake, to keep writing, researching, and pushing this show out to you guys, looking for more guests, and just being an all-around freaking, you know, general kind of fun whatever. To those who choose to donate on Buy Me a Coffee, you will be sent a private link. A private link that will take you to the video vault of Why Whiskey. Yes, we record the videos. So you get to see me and a guest, or just me sometimes, putting the show together. Unedited, nothing. You get to see the flubs. You get to see just exactly how much I say um. You ever notice that? It's crazy. Anyway, two ways to support. Drop me a review or go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash whiskey and make a small donation to the show. Thanks. Cheers. All right, so whiskey number three tonight is coming to us from the Boston Harbor Distillery. Now, I think I've had this on the show before. I think. Maybe not. So this is their Putnam uh, New England Rye Whiskey. It's 95% rye. It's 5% malted barley. It is a kicker. This is the cast strength one. It will say hi, how you doing. It's 122 proof. Uh, and it's it's hot. It is hot. And it is very, it, it's, it's rye. So if you are a rye person... This is for you. I got to tour their distillery. It's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. They pulled whiskey right out of the barrel for us to drink. It was phenomenal. Great place. So if you're ever in the Boston area, go check out the folks at Boston Harbor Distillery. You're not going to be sad you did. Excellent layout. Good food. The bar's great. Good trip all the way around. Oh, oh, oh. that is so good. So a lot of heat. There is a lot of heat with this one, but at 122, we're okay with that. Uh, this this does not have that sweet kind of 
caramely essence to it. This is uh, like a dry wine. It's very dry. It has that kind of, uh, you know, uh, bread kind of taste to it, like bready, kind of like bread dough. I don't, I don't know how else to describe that. Um, if you've ever had like like a, a warm rye bread, like right when it's fresh, like that's what this tastes like. A little sweetness on there, but I think that's coming from the barrel. This feels a little young. I don't know what the age is. No age statement, uh, but it feels it feels to be a little young. That's all. Uh, like it hasn't had time to chill out yet and decide what it wanted to be when it grew up. But uh, but it's not bad either way. I I do kind of like this. Great color too. Great color. All right, let's get to talking. So our riders have now met up. They are together. And they are heading to Lexington to let Sam Adams and John Hancock know that the Brits are coming to arrest him. And they got to go. So they get there. They get to the house. The guards outside the house don't let them in <laughs> initially. Kind of funny. After a while, they do let them in. They share their message. And now Dawes and Revere are together. And they are now going to head to Concord to let the folks in Concord know what's happening. So here they are. It's the middle of the night. And they're on the road. You can imagine the banter between the two of them. As they cross over, well, what is now I-95 North. <laughs> in that vicinity, which obviously did not exist at that time, they run into... A British patrol. But right before they ran into the British patrol, they ran into young little Mr. Prescott. And so now he's with him, and they're talking. And he shares, Paul shares all of the information that he has with young Sam. And then they get halted. The British patrol draws pistols, tells them to stop, or they'll be killed. They try to get away. Old Paul Revere, he gets hard taken, quick, Super quick. Dawes is actually able to ride pretty hard. Uh, eventually ends up falling off of his horse, uh, crawling towards a barn, and acts like he's got militia ready to sabotage. She's yelling to the barn, I got three of them coming, boys! Ah! Scares the Brits, and they take off running. Well, Sammy was able to get away. His ride was able to alert the militia in and around the Concord area. They had gotten the word to places up north, down south, Lincoln, all these other areas. And now the, they're converging. Now, what Prescott was able to do is he jumped a wall. He knew the area so very well, and that was kind of how he had sold himself to Dawes and Revere as being useful because he had great knowledge of all of the back roads and the byways and the land, and he knew how to get around and go wherever. And he was willing to help. And help he did. So eventually, they steal Revere's horse. And Revere's got to do the walk of shame back to Lexington without his horse. So this great, wonderful uh, dude who is credited for saving you know, the colonies and doing all these great things <laughs> ends up getting caught and then freaking... <laughs> Stumbles back to Lexington, high heels in his hand, looking rough as shit, uh, kind of sad. 
He makes it back to Lexington just as the shots are fired. Now, it, it what's crazy to think at this time is that Sam Adams and John Hancock hadn't left yet. These crazy bastards, Sam Adams, kind of like John, a little bit of a hothead, wanted to do some fighting. Didn't really want to do some fighting. He wanted to do some talking because he's a big talker. Uh, but eventually they get convinced to uh, get in the freaking... Uh, the wagon, and roll up the road to Woburn and to take up residence up there towards Burlington area to avoid being captured. So the events of the Lexington Common go down, which is very interesting because, again, it's another one of those instances where an errant gunshot goes off. Nobody knows who fired that first shot. Nobody knows if it was the militia that was mounted up or if it was somebody on the British side. But once that one shot went off, all of the guns went off. And at the end of it, one British soldier was hurt and a whole bunch of colonists were dead. That word spreads quickly. With the buildup of militia in Concord, and thanks to one Sam Prescott, the militia is now formed up and ready to go. The Brits then move into Concord. They start picking apart the place, looking for stuff. They don't find much. What they find, they dump in the water. And like I mentioned earlier, what gets dumped into the water is simply pulled out after the Brits leave. The big thing happens up at Northbridge. So there's two companies up at Northbridge and a whole bunch of militia up on the hill. Eventually, the militia come down the Brits get nervous, and a fight kicks off. And here we have a bunch of ragtag farmers who are not very accurate, by the way. No one is writing home about how great of a shot these guys are because they're not. They outnumber the Brits uh, substantially and inflict very minimal casualties. Not for trying. They 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 shot them all. They they. Sent all of the bolts they had downrange. <laughs> they just didn't hit very many people. Reserves from Concord coming up to help were slowed down because a particular officer leading the British decided that he was going to lead his troops by walking. Well, this apparent uh, this officer was a little out of shape, I guess. And so what would have taken a good 15-minute uh, jog ended up taking, oh, you know, about 30 minutes. By this time, the militia was heavy. They were ready. And the Brits started running. What's really interesting here is the fight didn't stop there. They didn't whoop their ass at the bridge and leave it, let it go. The Brits start retreating. And the militia, who has knowledge superiority of the terrain, uses that to <laughs> irregular warfare... Uh, their asses all the way back to Boston. They, they they chase the British along the road. There are skirmishes. There are firefights all along the road, all the way back to Bunker Hill. The militia won the day. And here's an interesting thought I have. So the Miniman Trail is literally right out here, just right outside the front of my home. Paul Revere's capture site is, I could see it, straight there. I think about that day quite often. And there's little markers along the trail that says a British soldier was laid to rest here. And the first time I got there, I was like, oh, 
Fuck him. Yeah, America. Ooh. But then I started thinking, and this thought might ruffle some feathers to some of my veteran friends, but I would challenge you to, to really kind of think about this. We have a lot more in common with that British soldier who died right there than we do with the rebels that were chasing him. What do I mean by that? It's a uniform fighting force that was sent to a country to enact the demands of its country against a people who were being rebellious. That young soldier in the ground was doing something he had volunteered to do, was serving his country like a lot of us are. A lot of us have never had to pick up a weapon to defend our homeland. Thank God. And I hope that never happens. But a lot of us have picked up a weapon and gone somewhere else. Didn't mean to get all weird on you on my first uh, first trip back. But my script writing skills are a little rusty. And now I'm freestyling. So I would encourage you to think, my, my veteran friends and, and followers... Who do you relate more to? I thought that was interesting. So now the ride is over. The songs are completed. The war has begun. A war that would end with America winning its independence and becoming a nation of its very own. We became, as Pinocchio would call it, a real boy. So in a quick recap... We had one night. We had three riders. We had a whole bunch of British soldiers and a whole bunch of farmers with guns. We had the start of the National Guard. We had the first victory for the United States, although we weren't the United States at the time, for the colonies. We had the first victory for the colonies. A guy named Paul, a guy named Billy, and a guy named Sam, three normal people who went out and did some extraordinary shit. Because they love their country. And they wanted to protect it. And that is commendable. Well, folks, that's going to wrap it up for me here tonight at the Bar of Questionable Life Choices. I'm Ian. This is Why Whiskey. Thank you so much for being patient with me. Thank you for understanding that uh, us indie podcasters (laughs) have real life shit to attend to. So every once in a while... We have to take a break. I had to take a break. But we're rolling again. We're up. We're at it. It's time to go. I have really enjoyed my time here with you all. Stay tuned for more coming in the next few weeks, months, and years. Hopefully, eventually, shoot me your ideas. If you want to know something about history, if you want me to cover a specific topic or anything, let me know. Shoot me a message. You can find me on Twitter at whiskey underscore why. I'm on Instagram uh, as under why whiskey. You can find me all over the place. So come check me out. Uh, shoot me your messages. Give me your feedback. Drop a review if you so choose. Take care, my friends. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, if you have any comments, questions, or would like to join me at the Bar of Questionable Life Choices for an episode, 
hit me up on email at whiwhiskeyhistory at gmail.com. Cheers.